due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. On February 7th, 1988, a true crime documentary series called America's Most Wanted debuted on Fox. Each week, the series introduced two or three unsolved cases that had police investigators stumped. Using interviews and reenactments, host John Walsh laid out the facts surrounding each case and asked the audience to help track down its suspects. And amazingly, it worked. The first episode of America's Most Wanted directly led to the arrest of a convicted murderer who escaped prison and was working in a New York City homeless shelter. The man's co-workers saw the episode and immediately called a tip into the police. He was back in custody less than a week later. By May of 1989, the show was a massive hit. A middle-aged man named Bob Clark in Richmond, Virginia, sat down with his wife, Dolores, to watch an episode. Bob and Dolores were only two of the 22 million people watching that night. But they were two of the most important. When John Walsh introduced the first case, Bob Clark saw his own face on the screen. Next to him, Dolores didn't even flinch. The photo was almost 20 years old, and the murderer's listed name was John, not Bob. Besides, her husband was a quiet, middle-aged office worker, not a killer. But someone from Bob's past also tuned into America's Most Wanted that night. And unlike Dolores, she immediately connected the dots. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a podcast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. This is our final episode on the 1971 List Family Murders. Last week, we covered John List's slaying of his wife, mother, and children, and the FBI's long quest to bring him to justice. This week, we'll dive into John List's history and the circumstances that drove the religious family man to murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, 
sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. On November 9, 1971, 46-year-old John List brutally murdered all five members of his family in their New Jersey home. Then he disappeared. The FBI launched a nationwide manhunt and plastered his photo on post office walls across the country. But they couldn't find a single lead. John List looked like every other father in a 1960s sitcom. He had thinning hair, a pair of horn-rimmed glasses, and always wore a suit and tie. Nothing about him stood out in a crowd, and that made him especially hard to find. By the end of the 1970s and into the 80s, the FBI and New Jersey police had mostly given up. The case became an inside joke around the office. Agents on vacation would send each other postcards from all over the world, each one signed by John List. I'm enjoying my nice long vacation. Sincerely, John List. Greetings from sunny Florida. I'm sweating through my suit. Warmly, John. Hey, it's me. Wish you were here. Well, not really. Eventually, they even gave up on the jokes. The case seemed completely lost. But in 1988, a New Jersey cop, who we'll call Richard First for the sake of anonymity, earned a promotion to head of homicide. The promotion came with John List's old file, sitting on his desk. The case had been passed from investigator to investigator without any progress, but first wanted to change that. He decided to make one final desperate attempt to find List, and this time it paid off. First recognized the success of the first season of America's Most Wanted and immediately knew he had to get John List on an episode. But when he sent the show's producers a letter, they shot him down. Dear Officer First, thanks for your note. We in America's Most Wanted strive to do everything we can to help you bring criminals to justice. Unfortunately, we are currently focusing on cases that have the highest likelihood of being solved. Since the List case has been cold for almost 20 years without a single lead, it doesn't seem exactly worth our... First, refused to take no for an answer. In late 1988, he headed from New Jersey to Delaware, where an executive producer for America's Most Wanted was set to give a speech at a conference. First found the man, introduced himself, and invited the executive up to his hotel room to look through the list case files. It's unclear whether the executive was taken with First's passion or just terribly bored, but whatever the case, he accepted First's offer. Come on, this one's perfect. Religious family man kills his entire family and disappears. But the guy's so uptight, he even arranges their corpses neatly before he goes. Listen, first, I appreciate the enthusiasm, but I'm just not seeing it. You have to read this confession letter, though. It's made for America's most wanted. It's step into my shoes for a second. 
We're still a new show. We need cases that we can solve. That's how we get the press, which keeps the network happy, which gets us renewed. This one is too old. John List is still out there somewhere. I'm sure of it. Well, unless he really was D.B. Cooper, and he died jumping out of that plane. D.B. Cooper, huh? Uh, let me see that confession letter again. At 8 p.m. on Sunday, May 21st, 1989, America's Most Wanted opened their episode with a segment on John List and his brutal killing spree. It featured interviews, photos, and even a life-sized bust of what investigators believed List might look like after 18 years on the run. From her condo in Denver, Colorado, 56-year-old Wanda Flannery realized that she had seen the man before. He used to be her neighbor. Wanda knew the man by another name, Bob Clark. She'd had suspicions about Bob in the past. But after seeing America's Most Wanted, she was sure of two things. Bob was John List, and it was up to her to stop him. Wanda had her son-in-law call the America's Most Wanted hotline and give them Bob Clark's new address in Virginia. The tip made its way from the TV show to the FBI to a field office in Richmond, Virginia. A few days later, on the morning of June 1st, two agents took a drive to check out Bob Clark. Bob's wife, Dolores, answered the door. Her husband was at work, but she invited them inside anyway. One of the men handed Dolores the FBI's old wanted poster, featuring the now infamous photo of John List from 1971. It's unclear if Dolores realized that she had seen the picture before when her neighbor Wanda showed it to her two years earlier in the pages of a tabloid. Back then, Dolores had denied any resemblance to her husband. But with the FBI agent standing in her home, she finally conceded that Bob looked just like the missing murderer. They even had the same surgical scar behind their right ears. Dolores gave them directions to his accounting office, and then she broke down in tears. What do you think? I think these tips are usually a waste of time. Right. I think they're just a bunch of nosy people watching TV and dreaming up stories. Sure. But then I saw the look on that woman's face when we gave her the wanted poster. No, I don't think. I know. My thoughts exactly. Around noon, three FBI agents burst into a small accounting office in western Richmond. The receptionist asked what they wanted, and the officers made their motivations clear. Bob Clark was under arrest. The receptionist pointed them towards Bob's desk, and the officers rushed in. They caught Bob on his way back from the copier, arms full of papers. Hold it right there. Give us your name. I'm Robert Clark. Right. Would you mind showing us behind your right ear? There's the scar. You're John List, aren't you? No, sir. My name is Bob Clark. Let's see your hands. You're under arrest. Bob calmly denied that he was John List, but barely contested when one of the agents cuffed his hands behind his back. He didn't even ask why he was being arrested. To the FBI agent, that was as much of a confession as the letter he left at the crime scene. A few hours later, at the Richmond police headquarters, Bob Clark's fingerprints proved what the agents already knew. They had finally found John List. Up next, we dive into John List's history 
And here is weak excuses for why he killed his whole family. Carter here. Have you heard about ParCast's newest series yet? It's called Medical Murders, and it exposes a dark and disturbing diagnosis that not every doctor wants to extend your life. Every Wednesday, Medical Murders introduces you to the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead used their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Join my good friend, host Alastair Merton, as he examines the formative years and motives of history's most infamous killers, dissecting their medical backgrounds with expert analysis and professional insight provided by practicing MD, Dr. David Kipper. You'll investigate a wide range of heinous healthcare workers, like the general practitioner believed to be the most prolific serial killer in modern history, or the dentist who led a double life as a hitman, or even the doctor and gang member who makes deadly potions for unhappy housewives to use on their husbands. When it comes to these true crime stories, the only thing the doctor ordered is murder. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Just before lunchtime on June 1st, 1989, John List's past finally caught up to him. After 18 years of searching, the FBI arrested the 63-year-old at his small accounting office in Richmond, Virginia. List was living under the name Bob Clark and had even found a second wife after he murdered his first. List may have created a different identity, but his new life was strangely similar to the one he left behind. Like List, Clark was an active member of the Lutheran Church. Like List, he worked as an accountant. And just like John List, Bob Clark's acquaintances could hardly believe he was a brutal killer. Immediately after news of the arrest hit papers, Bob's wife Dolores released a statement to the press. I was shocked to hear about Bob's arrest and what he is charged with. This is not the man I know. The man I know is kind and loving, a, a devoted husband and dear friend. He is a quiet yet friendly man who loves his work and people he works with. Bob is a man of devotion and faith. I hope somehow this is not true, and if it is, he was so stressed out that something snapped. Dolores visited her husband in jail two times a week while he awaited trial. By that point, she was likely the only one who still called him Bob. To the rest of the world, he was John List. On April 5th, 1990, List sat in a New Jersey courtroom and listened as prosecutors led the jury through his crimes. List's lawyer, a public defender named Elijah Miller, painted a picture of a religious man who was so worried about his family becoming sinners that he decided to kill them and save them from hell. His whole world was crumbling. 
For the salvation of his family, he acted as he did. I thought if I did it, my family would all go to heaven, and later on, I would have a chance to go to heaven. There was no other solution. Finally, I decided it was the only way. After a week of testimonies, the jury came back with a verdict. John List was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to serve five consecutive life sentences for the murder of his wife, Helen, his mother, Alma, and his children, Patty, Frederick, and John Jr. After two decades on the run, List would never set foot outside again. Eventually, even Dolores moved on. List loved order and structure, so he likely fit right into prison life. He quietly did his time through the 1990s and into the 2000s when a man named Austin Goodrich started sending List letters. Goodrich had a few small things in common with List. He was a member of List's former church and also hailed from Michigan. Apparently, that was enough for the two to strike up a friendship. Eventually, they even wrote a book together. List and Goodrich co-wrote and self-published a prison memoir in 2006 called Collateral Damage, The John List Story. In the typo-riddled book, List tried to explain his motivations for murder and why the tragedy wasn't his fault at all. First, he blamed his wife Helen for allegedly lying about a pregnancy and forcing him into marriage. Then, he blamed his children for torturing him with harmless childhood pranks. And then he tried to blame his undiagnosed mental disorders. Could it be that my obsessive compulsive disorder played a role in my reasoning? Is it possible that my post-traumatic stress disorder stemming from World War II combat influenced my fateful decision? As List tried to paint a picture of himself as the real victim, his retelling of the murder was merciless and cold. As he finished shooting his entire family and dragging their bloody corpses into the ballroom, List wrote, I felt spent, sated, something like the empty feeling left after sex. The book was, at best, a blatant cash grab by Goodrich. At worst, it was a weak attempt by List to shift the blame for the heinous crime off himself. The 132-page book may be the most detailed account of his life story, but it was more of a series of excuses than a true explanation for what drove a seemingly meek religious man to kill his wife and children. To try and understand that, we have to go all the way back to John List's childhood. Alma, shut that boy up! John List was born on September 17, 1925, in Bay City, Michigan. His father was hard on the timid, fearful boy, but his mother Alma doted on List endlessly. She constantly worried about his health and barely let him out of her sight. Throughout elementary school and into high school, the young John List never managed to make friends. He never connected with anyone his own age. All he had was his mother and the family Bible. By the time List was a teenager, World War II had erupted across the globe. He enlisted as soon as he graduated in 1943. List enjoyed the rigid structure of the army, but he still couldn't figure out how to fit in. He spent the majority of his time stationed in Louisiana. He finally made it to Germany, only months before the war's end. List's most intense experience in the war came one afternoon in April, when his patrol was captured by some German soldiers. But only a few hours later, the Germans realized where the war was headed 
and decided to surrender to the Americans instead. List was only a prisoner of war for an afternoon, but when he returned home, he did his best to act the part of a grizzled veteran. Oh, I don't like to talk about my time overseas. A lot of good friends never came back. A lot of memories I'd just as soon forget. Your mother told me you were mostly in Louisiana. Show Mr. Dale the pistol, Johnny. Wow. Look at that. It's an Austrian stare. I won the sharpshooter's badge with this gun. We're so grateful for your service, aren't we, Mr. Dale? Sure. Yes, of course. That particular pistol would be one of List's prized possessions for the next three decades, until it became a key piece of evidence in a multiple murder. After his time in the service, Alma and List decided that he should go to college, so he enrolled at the University of Michigan. Alma visited her son every few weeks. They would read the Bible and spend Sundays at church together. In between her visits, List would write his mother letters about all the friends he was making at school, including one man named Robert, or Bob Clark. This would all be news to Clark when he heard about it later. As far as he remembered, he had never even met John List. In 1950, not long after he graduated from college, List was called back to the Army to serve in the Korean War. List waited out the war at a military base in Richmond, Virginia. And it was there, on October 13, 1951, that he met the woman who would change his life forever. Do you like to bowl? What? Do you like bowling? I... I don't know. I I suppose so. Can I buy you another drink? Well... Or or a hot dog, or, or some french fries. I'll just get a lot and you can decide what you'd like. That sounds fine. Thank you. Great. Okay. Where's my wallet? I'm John. Helen. The 26-year-old woman was already a widow. Her husband, Marvin, had died in the Korean War just months earlier. John List showered her and her young daughter, Brenda, with expensive gifts. On December 1st, 1951, John List and Helen were married. They had only known each other for a month and a half. List brought his new wife to Michigan to meet his mother that Christmas, But Alma immediately decided she didn't like Helen at all. List, who had little experience with relationships or even friendships, struggled to balance the needs of his mother and his wife. Things got much worse after the wedding, when List and Helen planned a trip to California together. Helen left her young daughter with a family member so the newlyweds could travel alone. But the plan went awry when List invited his mother along. Unsurprisingly, this tense mother-daughter-in-law dynamic plagued the marriage with issues from the start, and the addition of children didn't make things better. Patty List was born in 1955, followed by John Jr. in 1956 and Frederick in 1958. By the end of the 1950s, Helen was reportedly drinking heavily and spending most of her time in bed depressed. She stopped going to church with List every Sunday, which was a huge deal for her fiercely religious husband, who she angrily called a goody-two-shoes. Helen also kept a photo of her first husband, Marvin, hidden in her bureau, along with a letter from the army detailing his bravery before he died in action. Helen got into the habit of reading the letter out loud to List. 
For his heroism on the field of battle, the United States posthumously awards Marvin Taylor the Silver Star for his valor. What do you think of that, John? Very impressive, Helen. Is that it? Do you have any feelings at all? Can you be real with me for one second? Can you open up? Is there anything going on in there? Yes, Helen. (sighs) Just shut the bedroom door on your way out. John List was at a loss. Human emotions couldn't be calculated and quantified like the numbers on spreadsheets at work. Instead of actually addressing the issues in his marriage, he tried to buy Helen's happiness. When that didn't work, he just kept throwing money at the problem until there was no more money left. Eventually, List could only see one solution. Murder. Coming up, we go inside the tragic, bloody morning that left five people dead. And now, back to the story. By 1965, John List's spending had driven his family deep into debt. That didn't stop him from putting an offer down on a 19-room mansion in Westfield, New Jersey. It was more house and more money than the family could handle, but List bought it anyway. And as if things weren't hard enough between him and Helen, List decided to move his mother into the mansion, too. Things got worse in 1967 when List lost his job. He didn't tell Helen. Instead, he continued to put on his suit and leave every morning, where he would drive to the train station and sit there until it was time to head home. He quietly stole money from his mother's bank account to keep the family afloat. Liss tried to find work, but he couldn't begin to keep up with the changing world of the late 1960s. He floated from job to job as the money dried up. Meanwhile, his children were getting older and harder to control. Instead of actually addressing his real issues at work and at home, Liss just prayed to God for help. When help didn't come, he turned to his mother's bank account again. By 1971, List was drowning in debt, angry at his kids for becoming their own people, and still trying to unsuccessfully buy his wife's love. He didn't know what to do, so he found the old pistol he brought back from World War II and made a plan. Patty, take a break from the dishes. We have to talk. Where are your brothers? Fred? Johnny? Get in here! How long is this going to take, Dad? I have rehearsal in a half hour. It'll take as long as it takes. This is important. It's time for you all to prepare your souls to die. You need to- Wait, what? What do you mean? I need to know whether you want to be buried or cremated. Burial is more expensive, but- Is this some kind of joke? Don't get emotional. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know what cremation means, Fred? It's when your body is burned. Do you want that? No? Fine. John, same as your brother? Good. Patty? (laughs) I'll put you down for burial. Now stop crying and finish up the dishes. But Dad... Dishes. John List woke up early on November 9th, 1971 and went to his office. He packed a small bag and stashed it. His credit cards and driver's license wouldn't be of use. 
All he really needed were the guns stashed inside a cabinet drawer. One of the guns was his old Austrian stare from World War II. The other one belonged to his late father. List would make use of both before the day was over. He waited for his children to leave. First, 16-year-old Patty ran out the door towards school. 13-year-old Frederick and 15-year-old John Jr. followed a few minutes behind. Soon, List and his wife Helen were alone in their massive New Jersey home. When she came down to the kitchen, List was ready. Freddy, if that's you trying to be sneaky, you better get going to school right now, young man. Helen didn't even have time to turn before he pulled the trigger. The first shot hit Helen in the head and she slumped onto the kitchen floor. List turned and went upstairs to see his mother. Alma had just put bread into the toaster when John List burst into her small apartment on the third floor. Unlike Helen, Alma saw him raise the gun and fire. The first bullet hit her in the face. She went sprawling backwards. Her blood spilled out across the floor. For some reason, List decided that he couldn't leave her body, so he grabbed Alma, dragged her into a nearby hallway, and shut the door. Then he squatted down and dutifully cleaned up the mess he made, just like his mother raised him to do. Once he was done, List strolled back downstairs and dragged his wife's corpse into the family ballroom. He straightened her bathrobe, covering her bare legs in what seemed like an attempt to protect the murdered woman's modesty. Then he draped a towel over her bloody, mangled face. Finally, with the first two parts of his plan complete, John List stripped out of his blood-soaked clothes and climbed into the shower to clean himself up. When he was done, he put on a crisp suit and tie. Neatness and order were always important to John List. This day would be no different. A few minutes later, he went outside to rake the leaves and clean up the yard. Around noon, the phone rang. It was his daughter, Patty. Hello? Dad, I need you to come get me. I feel awful. You aren't supposed to be home until five. Why can't you stick to a schedule? This is the problem with you. What problem? I'm sick. Can you just come get me? Fine. I'll be there soon. Don't make me wait. John List likely had the whole day meticulously planned in his head. Patty was forcing him to change things at the last minute. Again, List was reminded that his family was out of his control. Now it was time to take his power back. After he brought Patty home... List ran inside ahead of her. He was ready when she came in the door. He killed her the same way he had killed her mother just a few hours before, with a bullet in the back of her head, then dragged her into the ballroom as well. He noticed that his clothes were stained with his daughter's blood, so he changed again and headed out to his car. His sons wouldn't be home for a few hours. It was time to run an important errand at the bank. How can I help you, sir? My mother wants me to cash out some bonds she has in her safety deposit box. Sir, if the bonds are in her name, then your mother will likely have to take care of that herself. Sorry for the inconvenience. Next! No. No. I'm sorry. I should have been more clear. She has granted me power of attorney, so I have a legal right to those bonds. Now please either help me, or let me speak to the manager so I can find someone who will. Uh, 
My sincere apologies, sir. Uh, very well, right this way. Over the past few years, John List had secretly drained his mother's savings account to help deal with his massive debts. In 1971, all she had left was a few old savings bonds worth around $2,000. A few minutes before 2 p.m., List calmly cashed these out and slipped the thin stack of $100 bills into his pocket. He would have to wait and see how long the money would last on the run. When John List got home, his son Frederick called, wanting to leave his after-school job and come home early. List climbed back into his car and picked Frederick up. The boy didn't even have time to take off his heavy coat before his father coldly shot him in the back of the head. Soon, there were three bodies in the ballroom. But when John List's last son, John Jr., walked into the house at 4 p.m., he caught his father aiming the gun at him and managed to jump out of the way. The bullet wounded John Jr., but it didn't kill him. He started to crawl, bleeding through the house. His father followed him with a gun in each hand, firing as fast as he could, until finally... John Jr. stopped moving. This wasn't anything like List had planned. He wanted to kill his family quickly and cleanly. This was anything but clean, but at least it was done. He dragged the last body into the ballroom and positioned the boy neatly with his brother, sister, and mother. Then he sat down to make some phone calls. List called his pastor, Reverend Rewinkle, and Patty's acting teacher, Ed Iliano. He told them his wife's mother was sick and that the whole family had to take an emergency trip to North Carolina to see her. They could be gone a while. The smell of blood and gunpowder wafted through the house as he finished his calls. Then he sat down to write a few final letters. The first was to Helen's mother, who actually was sick in North Carolina. Mrs. Morris, by now you no doubt know what has happened to Helen and the children. I just couldn't support them anymore, and I didn't want them to go into poverty. Also, at this time, I knew that they were all Christians. I couldn't be sure of that in the future as the children grow up. The next letter was to Helen's sister. I'm sorry that it had to go that way, but when I couldn't support them, I couldn't let them go on welfare, etc. And then to his aunt. Please accept my sincere condolences. Finally, he wrote a letter to Reverend Rewinkle, who he had spoken to on the phone just minutes earlier. In it, he confessed to everything he did. But instead of saying that he killed his family because he was broke, he claimed that ultimately it was all for the sake of God. Perhaps it was for the best as far as the children's souls are concerned. I know that many will only look at the additional years that they could have lived. But if finally they were no longer Christians, what would have been gained? Originally, I had planned this for November 1st, All Saints Day, but travel arrangements were delayed. I thought it would be an appropriate day for them to get to heaven. Liss neatly organized the letters on his desk and placed the two guns in a drawer. Then he did his best to clean up the blood and brain matter spread around the house. It was important to Liss that things were tidy and clean, even now. The man made one final tour around his home and turned on the lights. He possibly thought this would make it seem like the family was still alive, even though he had already told people that they were going on a trip. 
Finally, he turned on the radio and let the sound of his favorite classical radio station, WQXR, fill the house. His big day was complete. By now it was past dinner time and John List was hungry. He went to the kitchen and cooked himself a final meal. And John List wasn't one to leave dirty plates in the sink. He carefully washed his dinner dishes and left them drying on the rack. They would still be there a month later, when police finally discovered the horrifying scene. After his arrest, John List spent the last two decades of his life in a New Jersey state prison, only an hour's drive from the suburban street where he once raised his family. For the rest of his life, he maintained that he shot his entire family in order to help them. He single-handedly sent them off to heaven. List died in 2008, only a few months after what would have been his daughter's 53rd birthday. He had no family left to claim his body. We'll never know if the Lists made it to the afterlife like John said he wanted. But one thing is clear. If there is a heaven, John List isn't there. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on the List family murders, amongst the many sources we used, we found Death Sentence, the inside story of the John List murders by Joe Sharkey, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify's make it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Solved Murders for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders exclusively on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Solved Murders was written by River Donahue, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Tiana Camacho, Kai Jordan, KG Tang, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Killer nurses, deranged doctors, mad scientists. Don't forget to check out the new ParCast original series, Medical Murders. Every Wednesday, meet the worst the medical community has to offer. Men and women who took an oath to save lives, but instead use their expertise to develop more sinister specialties. Follow Medical Murders free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.